you are here in this place, that your life-giving wind blows in our sails. So we lift our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, and ask today that you would be our filler, our source, our renewer. God, we come to you, and we thank you that it is in you that we have life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Johnny was a marble player. He had actually pockets full of marbles. These were years ago, you know, when kids did this on the street regularly. They, they would play for each other's marbles. And if you popped the other person's marble outside of the circle, then that marble was yours. And that's how you came to your own cache of marbles. And Johnny was a pretty well-established uh, champion of the neighborhood. But that didn't seem to matter on one hot summer afternoon as he was walking home he passed Susie on the street and Susie was enjoying this wonderful Hershey's kiss mm. and as he passed it just looked obviously so good and he noticed in her pockets were Hershey's kisses and so he said I've got a deal for you I'll trade you um, for your Hershey's Kisses. And she says, all my Hershey's Kisses? And he said, yeah, all your Hershey's Kisses. What do you want from me? She says, well, I want all your marbles. Ah, all my marbles? And so Johnny agreed to the trade, and he went down into his pockets, and he started pulling out the marbles. And he pulled out every marble but one, that one that was the blue steely, the one that was extra... Uh, deft in his flicking finger, you know, the one that would pop out any marble. It was, his, it was his honey marble. It was the one that would win all of them back. He couldn't give up that marble. So each time he went down, he worked carefully around that blue steely, and then finally he said that he had given her all her marbles, and she took out all her Hershey's Kisses, and he walked away enjoying the Hershey's Kisses, and she skipped away enjoying all his marbles. And then all of a sudden, Johnny had a thought. And he called back to Susie, and he said, Susie, did I get all your chocolates? Did I get all your chocolates? This life with Christ is a great exchange. And if we don't give him all that we are for all that he brings to us, we only cheat ourselves. We cheat ourselves of walking in that confidence that he is all ours and we are all his. When we come to this table this morning, remembering him, he gave it all. And he still gives all of himself to us. Let's not erode any of our confidence in that great exchange. Let's bring him all of ourselves today. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread. And he gave thanks to you, our Father, and he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By the way, this morning, if you don't have some elements, our ushers will be happy to bring those to you. If you'll just raise a hand. 
at home if you're partaking of your own juice and bread there we pray over your elements as well and after supper Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks to you our father and he gave it to his disciples saying take and drink from this all of you for this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me So, Lord God, in remembrance of you, we do these things. We pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us, your people, and on these gifts of juice and bread, that they may enact what they signify, that we may be partakers afresh today of your grace. All that you bring to us, Father, for all that we bring to you, what a deal. What an exchange. We thank you for it even as we pray as you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we continue to worship this morning, we're going to give our offering as an act of worship. And there is a phone number you can text if you're into doing that. You can give that way. That phone number is there. Um, and online, Chris has given you uh, instructions on how to do that. Um, or if you want to give this morning, we have a drop box right over here by this door. You can do that uh, as we sing this song or as you leave today. We're just doing that to keep, you know, keep us from passing something. But you know what? The Lord is honoring your faith. He's honoring your faith to be present. He's honoring your faith to tune in. He's honoring your faith to give this morning. So would you pray with me as we continue to worship with our giving? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. You are our good, good Father. And we know, God, that every good gift is from you. And Lord God, we just bring back to you this morning out of what you've given us out of worship, Lord God, we bring our tithes and we bring our offerings, uh, Lord, before you. And we just thank you that you said, test me in this. If I will not open the floodgates of heaven upon your home and pour out so much blessing, there's not room to receive. And so, God, we just thank you that you're our source, that you're our provider, that you know what we need before we even ask. But yet we ask, Father, because apart from you, we are nothing. So, Lord God, I just ask that you would bless all these precious ones as they give, that you would bless the seed that we sow, Lord God, that you would multiply it to increase the kingdom of God. May your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.
It's nothing like being a child of God, right? Mm. What an incredible gift that is. It's the source of our very life. Now, I'm an oaky. I'm an oaky, but I love the beach. How does that work? I've always loved the beach. And come to Texas. There you go. And as as a boy, I I, I was surprised by something that I didn't, you know, I, I thought I understood the beach and swimming. And we had pools back home, and I was on the swim team. I wasn't intimidated by that at all. But I remember when I was a kid getting in the ocean and just having so much fun with my sis and everybody else that we were playing with on the beach. And then the horror of waking up and looking up after about an hour and a half's worth of play and realizing my hotel had been transformed into a completely different hotel. You know that panic? And I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and about a quarter mile down the beach was my hotel. Now, this didn't happen when I tread water in my pool at home, you know, back, back at the neighborhood pool. That, that never happened. But, but on the beach, how many of you have ever experienced that? You know, you, you, you all of a sudden realize that the currents have taken you. There's just a natural jir- drift uh, to the beach. And the same is true about our lives. Uh, this life and this world, there's a natural kind of drift to it. Uh, away from Christ and towards our flesh. Away from sanctification and towards sin. The natural inclination of the human being apart from God is to be caught in a certain kind of drift that erodes our character over time, that makes us not more like Christ, but less like Christ, less centered on Christ and more centered on ourselves. If you've ever awakened to realize your life is not completely focused on Christ, welcome to the family, right? We, we all know what it is to be... Uh, in that drift. And so 2 Chronicles 7.14 doesn't say this to people who are beyond or unaware of the love of God. It says it to the very people of God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, those ways that we seem to just drift into, if we'll turn Then he promises revival and forgiveness and restoration to our land and to his people. Uh, So far, we've looked at several things that we kind of naturally drift into as human beings. And we're talking about what it means to turn from those, to turn from those wicked ways. We've looked at pride. Most of us never saw that coming. Or, Or burnout or compromise, or cynicism. They just tend to grow like weeds in a garden, and unless you pay attention and intentionally pull them out, they'll take over. They seem to grow with time. But if we will turn and turn to God, if we return, then He forgives, He heals, He restores. Today, I want to add to that list a natural consequence of the unattended life, let's call it, emptiness. Emptiness. 
Kerry Nyawolf, a pastor, a megachurch pastor in Canada, tells a story of some of his early days when he was not actually a pastor, didn't think of becoming a pastor. He had gone to law school and was a fast climber in a law firm uh, of some reputation in his town, in his city. And he and the other guys that were new to the law firm had a running joke. He was the one that started it. It was, uh, tell me, find me a lawyer that's a happy lawyer, and I'll give you a million dollars. Because he knew the bet was safe. He knew the bet was safe. Now, I, I'm not saying that. I think there's ways that you can be a lawyer and, and be uh, an instrument of God. I think. I want to believe that. Uh, I'm not going to get into a bunch of lawyer jokes, but it's very, very tempting right now because I know they have just as many preacher jokes, so I, I, I'm not going to go there. But, but that was the running joke. Find me a happy lawyer. I'll give you a million bucks. Knowing that every dollar of that bet was safe. It was safe. In fact, he, he tells the experience of being in the law firm when uh, one of the most talented lawyers in the place walked in with a lottery ticket. And he said, if I win this thing, you guys are never going to see my face again. Now, what made it sad was he's, he was the guy at 35 years of age who owned the law firm. Emptiness. Empty, emptiness. It's easy to climb a ladder of success only to realize at the top when you finally get there that it's not what you expected. Jesus said it this way, For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? That's Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Have you played the, the game of gaining the world before? Have you found yourself caught up in it? If you live in this world, the natural currents of this world will carry you into that kind of thinking. Gaining, acquiring, something is going to make me happy. I remember uh, I was fascinated by the Passion of the Christ and was so thrilled before it came out that Mel Gibson was directing it. I had seen some previews of it and thought it was just the most spectacular thing I'd ever seen uh, in terms of taking the biblical narrative and making it come alive. The, uh, in, in film. Just never seen anything like that. You know, mo most of the dramas I'd seen at, in church were, you know, kind of, I call them bathrobe theater. You know, they were, they were just not of a quality that was that engaging. Uh, and, and so I, I love that movie. And do you remember just before it came out, Diane Sawyer interviewed Mel? Anybody remember those interviews? And Mel was asked, why you and why the passion of the Christ? Why are you doing this, Mel? Don't you realize this could, this could kill your career? And Mel explained that it was very personal. He explained that there was a time in his life, and I, I take this as a quote, life was my proboscis, which means a cup. I had to go look up what that means. Life was my proboscis, and I was drinking it up. The parties, the fame, the women, the money. But, Diane, it left me empty. 
just empty. And the only thing that could fill it, that emptiness, was Christ. So you're saying you're a Christian? He says, yes. Yes, I'm not perfect, but I'm a Christian. Why do you want to be a Christian? He said, because to me, it's life. It's life. I remember that testimony. A man that was at the top of his game that had everything the world had to offer, and yet he found it empty until he was filled with Christ. Have you played the, the game of gain? You get the degree. You find the one, and they say yes. You land the dream job. You get the corner office. And then there's this haunting emptiness that can envelop you, this vacuous feeling, and almost always the same kind of question comes out of it. Is this it? Really? Is this all that is? Is this what I've been striving for all this time? Is this it? The, the game of gain usually comes out in phases. You know, we usually, and I don't know what phase you're in if you're playing this game, but it usually starts out with more as the theme. If you, you could just get more. More of whatever entices you. And some folks never get out of that game. They play the fill-me-up game, what's in it for me, all their lives. They never get out of the phase of more. But if you've played the more game for a while, then it shifts into another phase. And it's not just more, it's better. Now, now you pursue not, not, not only the quantity, but you've developed a certain taste for the quality and the game shifts a bit, and you hope that it's a new game, that you've learned a better way to play it, and you go from more to better. And if you play that game long enough and keep playing it, you'll usually go from more to better to different. To different. You decide in that emptiness that that all you have has to reflect you somehow. It's got to be different. It's got to be unique. It's got to be rare. More, better, different. I don't know where you are in that spectrum. I've played up and down that game pretty well as well. But you know where this game always ends? More, better, different. Despair. Emptiness. I mean, you've paid, played Monopoly before. It was, it, it was that game that taught us all the rules by which we as young capitalists could succeed. But John Ortberg points out his grandmother ta taught him that no matter who wins the game, and he had to play for years before he could best his grandmother, no matter who's playing the game, all of it goes back in the box. The game of gain. If we're lucky, it leaves us empty before we've invested our whole life in it. 
Solomon, he was a guy that had it all. More money than Bill Gates. More women than any sane fool. You know, any, any sane person. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Help me with that. Yeah, you know. One is gracious sufficiency. Thank you, Lord, for that grace. And all the ladies in the place could say amen the same way, couldn't we? But Solomon was a guy who had it all, and yet God gave him great wisdom and perception and to realize when he was himself a fool. Listen to Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11. Solomon, the great king, the wise king, the richest and wisest of kings, I also tried to find meaning, meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, and yet he became an expert on empty. Here's a modern-day parable, really. Michael Phelps, 2014. Yes, I'm talking about the Olympian. I think it's 22 gold medals that he touts now. In 2012, he had just, uh, he had just um, taken home eight gold medals. He was the premier athlete of the Olympics, if not of the world at the time. He was young. He had his life before him. And in fact, his, his coach uh, said this about him. After, in 2014, he had his second DUI, completely obliterated his life. He was self-destructive. He was suicidal. His coach, Bob Bowman, uh, told the Times, it made me feel terrible. I remember one day I said, Michael, you have all the money that anybody your age could ever want or need. You have a profound influence in the world. You're rich, you're famous, you have free time, and you're the most miserable person I know. What's up with that? What's up with that? The DUI got in the news, and one of Phelps' 
friends looked him up. It was someone who shared his athletic accomplishments to some degree. Ray Lewis was at the top of his game, too. He was playing football for the Baltimore Ravens at the time. And he, he sought Michael out. They'd been friends for a while. And Ray talked about his own life and his own testimony. He didn't talk so much about football. But then he handed him a book. I wish he'd handed him the Bible, but he handed him something almost as good. He handed them a book that many of you have probably read. It's called The Purpose-Driven Life. The Purpose-Driven Life by Rick Warren. And in that particular book, the very first line must have hit Michael Phelps like a sledgehammer. If we go to the next slide. Oh, the next slide. Nope, back. That one. It's not about you. Do you remember that first line? The purpose-driven life. It's not about you. Well, that was Michael's great mistake. Everything in his life had been about him, his achievement, him, him proving himself to a father who had been absent since he was nine years old. It was all about him. He, he was like the man that Jesus talks about. If any... Uh, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. He had lived the first part of that verse. Ray Lewis was introducing him to the second part. It's not about you. In the 2016 Rio Games, people were shocked that Michael Phelps made it back and was in championship form. They knew how close his life had come to self-destruction, and yet here he was again, ready to compete as one of the greatest athletes in the world. But people noticed not just his ability to swim, they noticed a change in his character. He was relaxed. He was smiling. He was having conversations with other people as if they mattered. And one of the greatest moments of joy in the whole 2016 games was not when he won an individual medal, but do you remember that moment when the team won and Michael Phelps was hugging every one of them? He loved contributing to their victory as much as having one of his own. What had changed about Michael Phelps? Well, it wasn't just about him anymore. He was engaged. He had a child on the way. But like Michael Phelps, even as Christians, we tend as, as human beings to default to a what's in it for me kind of thinking. That becomes our mentality if God doesn't continue to renew our hearts. It guts anything we do or anything we have of any kind of eternal meaning or value. We have it, but it just doesn't matter to us anymore, mostly because it's ours now. We've earned it. What is it a profit to a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? One of the most life-giving things in all of life is knowing no matter what you do, you're clear about why you do it. 
Here's a little video that I think expresses that better than I can do it with words. is called how do I know and a lot of times when people hear the phrase how do I know the next thing they say is what how do I know what but the key really isn't to know what the key is to know why because when you know your why you have options on what your what can be for instance my why is to inspire people to walk in purpose my what is stand-up comedy my what is writing books my what can be going out with some friends to eat in fact, another what that has moved me towards my why is a, a web series that we have out now called Break Time. So every Wednesday at 3 o'clock, you should subscribe to the, to the channel. Uh, we do a series called Break Time on YouTube. So 3 o'clock, we drop a new episode. One episode in particular I'm about to show you a clip to. We were in, uh, we were in Winston-Salem. So Break Time, this is how it works. I travel the country. I do stand-up comedy probably an hour, hour and a half at an event. And in the middle of my show, I'll just sit down and start talking to the audience. And funny just happens. Or I'll meet somebody who's really interesting. So I met this one guy, and he said that he teaches music at a school. I was like, all right, you teach music, you know, um, can't you sing? And then uh, I'm just going to show you the clip. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right, so... Um, let me get a couple. Let me get a couple bars of like uh, "Amazing Grace." Can you do the first part of that? Let me, go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow, that bro could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Um, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the Here's the thing. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time I asked him to sing, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what has more impact because you're walking in or towards your purpose.
Do you know your why? If you can stay in touch with that deeper why, something bigger than yourself, especially if that is the one that is bigger than all things, if it's the Lord of life and the Savior of your soul, that can be what inspires you to do what you do, even when you're at a dinner with a friend, to be his ambassador wherever you are, wherever you work, whatever you do, to bring him glory. If you can crawl out of that hole of emptiness where it's all about you and make your life something about something so much greater than you, then all of life has a different source, a different starting place. You ought to read the book. I don't, I'm not going to have time for each one of these points that, uh, that Rick Warren makes. But, but, but all of us have, have different ways of, of looking at our lives. Well, what's your life metaphor? How do you see it? Is it a circus? Is it a minefield? Is it a parade? Is it a journey? Is it a dance? Is it a carousel? Because you see, how you see your life will also determine oftentimes how you react and what shapes your life. If it's a carousel, sometimes up, sometimes down, relentlessly in motion. Is it a 10-speed bike with so many gears you never use? Is it a game of cards? You play the hand you're dealt? Because our, our life metaphors have a way of, of uh, shaping who we are. They put us in touch with our why. If your life's a party, then your primary value is probably going to be having fun. If it's a race, it's all about speed and competition. If it's a battle or a game, then you always have to win. But Romans 12, 2 says, don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be willing just to drift. Reset. Get out of the water. Go back to your source. Return. Life's a test, and life's a trust, and life is temporary. I wish I could go into all those metaphors, but I think I can sum all of them up by simply pointing us back to one of those phrases in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Isn't it interesting what comes just before the power to turn is seeking his face. Jesus said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Shall find it like Mel Gibson did. Shall find it like Michael Phelps did. Jesus told a story in Luke 
chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, he, he said, illustrating this point, he said, even when you have an abundance, your life does not consist of your possessions. And then he told this story of a guy who had some great crops and some great harvests, and so he built bigger barns to fill his barns even more. And he said to himself, soul, take rest, be merry, kick back, enjoy life. But he said that very day, his life was required. And the scripture there actually calls this guy a fool. And Jesus said, so is every man who is rich in things, but not rich towards God. Seek his face. I remember playing basketball as a kid. I can still hear my dad's voice in the gym. He'd say silly things. Hey, babe! Never really understood it, but I knew that voice was dad's. I won't tell you what he said when the refs called a bad call. That's kind of a family tradition. But I can remember dad's uh, voice. But I can also remember his face in that crowd. And whenever mom and dad were there, I played with a little more confidence. I was a release somehow to a little more risk and a little more drive. I would occasionally look up in the stands and I would look into my dad's face and he was pulling for me with his toenails. Sometimes we'd catch eyes and he'd just nod at me and that nod meant the world. It meant, son, don't worry about missing that shot. I still believe in you. It meant, don't worry about the score. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. And my father wasn't the only one that was that way. There were a lot of dads in the stands that were that way, that gave that kind of strength to their sons, probably their daughters as they played, but I know to their sons. Because there was something about the unconditional grace in his face that rather than pulling me back from the competition, helped me release myself fully to him. I became more of a player when dad was cheering me on. Does that make sense? Now, Jesus also told the story of the talents of God had given, uh, the landowner had given uh, his servants different amounts of money, and he told them to invest them while he was away. While he was away. That's a clever, clever piece of that story, isn't it? Because, because Jesus was going to die and be resurrected, and, and 
go away. At least in the physical. And so we, we can follow that story. But someday, he will return and reward us for what we did with what he gave us. Life, life is, a, is a test, and it's a trust. And all that we have, our opportunities, our skills, our abilities, our money, our things, all of that is entrusted to us for a season. If you don't believe that, ask yourself, who's going to own it 100 years from now? It's all on loan from God for us to do with it something of significance, something that matters, something of eternal worth. And Jesus told that story, and at the end, at the end of the story, the, the owner comes back and he rewards his servants for what they did with what was entrusted to them, right? You remember that? And what does he say? He says to those who managed that opportunity well, well done, my good and faithful servant. He affirms them, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little things. I will make you faithful in much. There's promotion. And finally, there's celebration. Enter into the joy of your master. You know what I saw in my dad's face in those stands? I saw his joy. That was his son that was playing down there. He didn't have that same look in his eye when someone else made a much more difficult shot than I had made. When someone made a much more deft move than I could make. And, and I think that story, I would almost add to that story of the talents. I don't think the master was joyful because of the extra talents that someone had managed for his behalf. <laughs> I think he was joyful because it was his servant that had done it. It was the one he loved, the, the, the one to which he entrusted himself. That, that's the one. It was his son. Too, too often I think of the joy of the master as something that maybe will be mine someday in heaven. We all hope to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I often think of that as maybe a someday. Maybe someday my life will accumulate enough faithfulness that I will really give my heavenly father joy. That's, that's totally the wrong picture. Right in the midst of the game, when you look into his eyes, you know what you see? You see joy. Not because of how well you're performing or what you're gaining or what you're even doing for him. It's that it's you that's doing it. It's his child, his daughter, his son. And that transforms everything. That means every bucket's not there to prove myself. That bucket that I make is something over which Dad and I can just share that much more joy. And now all these accomplishments that have been empty, if they're things that you're doing with your Father and for the glory of your Father, if you do it for my sake, Jesus said, then you will find life. Not this dead end of emptiness but this ongoing river of joy 
from the Father who delights in you, his child. I am a child of God, we were singing. Do you remember just moments ago? There's something about just singing that phrase that echoes in my heart, and I sensed it did for you just by the way you were singing it. I am a child of God. It sounds intimidating. Denying ourselves. But that's the antidote for living for yourself and coming up empty, is denying yourself and living for Christ. I'll close with this. There was a, a little girl who trusted her father. He had always been so good to her. Coming up, he had given her a, a, a set of plastic pearl, uh, a necklace, you know. It was so much like the real one that mom had that she wore it with pride. But even more than that plastic necklace was the fact that her dad considered her worthy of the gift. It said something about her. She would wear those plastic pearls. She refused to take them off. She wore them through grade school, through junior high. And then once she was in high school, she would still be found wearing those plastic pearls. Her dad decided to bless her. He had a surprise for her. And during her senior year, he came in with something behind his back. And he says, honey, I have something for you. I want it to bless you. But honey, first you have to give me your plastic pearls. Daddy, she said, those, those mean so much to me. You gave those to me, Daddy. You can't, you can't ask for my plastic pearls. They're, I'm too attached to them. Don't ask that of me. And he said, do you trust me? She teared up a little bit, and she said, well, yes, I trust you. And she took off the plastic pearls, and she put them in her father's hand, and he pulled from behind his back a treasure, a string of real pearls. And he put it around her neck. Just like someday Christ will put a crown upon our heads. And, and when he does, we will... We will be still so in love with him, still wanting to glorify him, that we will take that crown off and lay it at his feet and worship. Because then, when we see him face to face, we, we will want to give him our treasures. We, we will want to give him all that we possibly can. And if that's all we have at that time, at that crown, so be it. So be it, he's worthy, because... I can never outgive this God. If you want to get loose of the stranglehold that stuff has on you in this life, seek his face. Seek his face. Abide in him. Abide. Make him your home. Abide in him. I have told you these things, Jesus said, that my joy may be in you. And your joy, not empty, but full. Full. Would you stand with me this morning?
Lord Jesus, that drift is uh, real for all of us. It's so easy to start drifting with the current and thinking like so many around us that the measure of everything is what's in it for me. When the measure of everything is what we can do with it to honor you. So today, Lord, we return, we reset, we repent. We vacate the center of our own lives, and we ask, Lord Jesus, for you to make that center your throne. All that we have, Father, plastic pearls and all, we hold it before you right now. We offer you our very selves. And we thank you, Lord God, what we receive in return is treasure, eternal treasure. Father, we make that great exchange all over again. Release us from the prisons of emptiness. We seek your face. And we see in your face fullness of joy. And you're looking at us. Lord Jesus, you're looking at your bride. Thank you, Lord God, for choosing us. Give us the courage to choose you with all that we are. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow after you, to live your kind of life because your love is so real to us that we're living into it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God, we return. And this morning, if, if that's your prayer, if you've owned that prayer, perhaps you need to just go to your Father. You need to spend some time with him at this altar. And this morning, if you're making that exchange for the first time, if you'd trade your plastic for his pearls, your trinkets for his treasure, take my hand as you come forward this morning and we'll pray each of us for that great exchange to unfold in your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you have a choice before you. You have a choice. You can make it right now. Do you trust me, the Father says? If you do, then don't let anything keep you from making that trade. It's one you'll never regret. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.